It's good to be with you today and good to be able to turn to God's Word together. As we turn to God's Word, we'll be in Psalm 42. I've been doing a series in Sojourners, the fellowship group that I teach uh, during the first service, and that series was called Psalms for All Seasons. And I was looking at specific psalms and how they help the believer through the different seasons of life that we all experience. And three weeks back on the 10th, I was planning on teaching this psalm in Sojourners, uh, but I became sick right as the service started, and so God seems to have uh, divinely intended it that uh, I would preach this psalm as we end this year and look to begin a new year. And so we read the psalm as our scripture reading this morning. I think it's an excellent passage for us to be in as we know that a new year is coming right around the corner. And I didn't choose this psalm only because it's an election year coming up. You might be feeling some of the emotions the psalmist would feel, but I chose this psalm rather because this psalm speaks of a reality of the Christian life. That the Christian life is not always something of ease and of comfort. Christian life is not where everything always comes up smelling like roses. But rather, we know we live in a fallen world. We live in a sinful world. We are sinful ourselves. And there is an adversary that is constantly at work against us. And so the reality of this world is that, uh, though there are clearly times where we have even extended seasons of God's blessing and comfort and rest, there are often times when we are in the trenches We are in the war, and we feel like we're losing the battle. There are times when you seem to take a spiritual beating, and it never seems like it's going to end. And if that's not you today, if you say, no, well, I'm blessed, I'd say that's great, but that's not everyone's experience right now. Some of us are in seasons of discouragement. Some might be in prolonged seasons of feeling the heat of the battle, of feeling that press. And when you are in that season and it doesn't relent, your tendency can be to become sad or discouraged. God may even seem distant. And so when those seasons continue on and there's no end in sight, if the believer is not properly grounded In God's word, they can begin to doubt God. They can be tossed about by the next wave of life that comes at them. And when you do that, you will end up riding an emotional roller coaster with each new day because it will depend on what each new day brings your way. And what I'm here to say, not on my own authority, but on the authority of God's word, is that God doesn't want believers to live that way. He doesn't want believers to be those who are the perpetually walking wounded, those who are ever suffering, those with no hope for the future. I like to call them Eeyore Christians. You know who I'm talking about. Don't look at anybody right now, but you know the type of Christian that I mean. That's not what we're called to if we're in Christ. And so God has recorded for us in this psalm an example of someone who is going through a great difficulty, through a season of discouragement, 
And we have the honest response of his soul to that discouragement. But yet, even in that time, the one thing that he doesn't do is he doesn't ultimately lose sight of God's character and God's promises. And so even through the challenges, through the trial, he pushes on, he trusts by faith that God is his salvation. Psalm 42 is surely up there among the most emotive, the most brutally honest of the Psalms. It's a lament, it's transparent. The psalmist is transparent about the experience of life that he is living, that he is living a life that seeks to honor the Lord and coming under a trial. It is a lament psalm, and yet it is a psalm that doesn't just stay there in the lament. It doesn't languish in that feeling of being downtrodden and beaten up. It's honest about the suffering of this life, the, the, the seasons that you may go through, but it doesn't just stay there. Rather, it turns to a hope. It turns to a trust and a remembrance of God. And as we read this psalm, the verses that probably stood out, the kind of the highlight verses, verses 5 and 11, kind of the key verses of this psalm of the sons of Korah, showing where their ultimate hope in this life was found, their hope for the discouragement that will come in this life. Because we need to be prepared. The trial will come for all of us. If you're not in that trial now, it's, it's coming. And so you need to be prepared and you need truth to anchor yourself to. And so this psalm helps us to remember the reality of the Christian life and then gives us the remedy of the Christian life. So the main idea of of this psalm would be this. The remedy for trials and discouragement in this life is found in the remembrance of God's character and God's promises. We'll see that as we go through this psalm. As an outline, you can break this psalm apart into two Pieces. The first would be verses 1 through 4 that you could just label the reality of the Christian life. The reality of the Christian life. It does no good for anyone, especially believers, to paint a picture of the Christian life as one that is always trouble-free, one that is always burden-free living. We live in a sinful, fallen world. And part of living in that world is the experience that the psalmist will write about in these verses. As we read before, we see from this psalm that he's writing from a place of going through a very challenging trial, going through a great difficulty. And nothing in the psalm would say that this is because of his own sin, Rather, it would actually seem just the opposite. It would seem this is a righteous person, somebody who longs to worship God, longs to know God better, but is going through a prolonged season of suffering. But even in that, wants to honor God and wants to worship him. And so in these first four verses, again, we have the reality of the Christian life. Not a all-the-time reality for believers, but at times these are things that we can experience. Seasons that may come in our lives to where we feel a sort of spiritual drought, as it were. And so let's just look at these verses and go through them here. Verse 1, we could call this 
just a longing for God. Now we know this verse because we sing a song with these words. As the deer pants for the water, so pants my soul for you, O God. The picture here is of an animal with an intense longing and need for water. Water is one of the most basic things that a, any creature needs. Nothing can quench thirst quite like water can, especially when you are longing for it. And so like the deer, the psalmist is using this to say, I need God like a deer needs water. This is the one thing I need above all in my life is you. This is a desire for God's presence in a time of great longing for him. And so as he compares himself to the deer, he's, he's saying in a sense, I'm in this season, this time of drought with God. I have this longing for God. And so right off the bat, when we see this psalm, we need to understand that he writes with a level of honesty and transparency about what he is going through. He's open with God about this struggle, but he never calls God into question. He never calls God into question, even throughout the challenges that he faces. We'll see that more as we go through the text, but I just want to plant that in your minds as we start out here. So again, he's in this dire spiritual state. He knows his first need is of God. And so he has this intense longing for God. Then in verse 2, the next reality that we have, we could just call this uh, loneliness. A sense of isolation from God. A sense of isolation from being able to worship God. Now this is actually a, a would be a physical isolation. This would be in, in the sense of the uh, Israelites they would come before God and worship him in one spot in the temple. So he's saying, in effect, I'm not able to come and worship God with God's people. Israel was prescribed a way to worship God. They came before God with sacrifices. The temple was where they worshiped. And so what he's saying is I'm cut off from the temple and I'm cut off also not just from worshiping you, but from being with God's people. He feels the weight of not being able to come before God and give him the honor that he is due. And so contrast that desire, that longing, with those today who would say something like this, I don't feel like worshiping today. Or it wouldn't be authentic of me if I came and worshiped because I don't feel like it. When you say those things, when you say, I don't feel like worshiping God, that is when you most need to come and gather with God's people, to come under the word, to worship him. Because God never says anything about your subjective level of feeling something in order for him to be worthy of worship. He rather says, come and worship. There are times when you will have to worship out of a sense of duty and a sense of devotion that you know is right, even when you might not feel it. And that is not hypocrisy on your part, but rather that is submission to God and that is trust in Him. Because if you're honest, you don't always do everything that you feel like doing all the time. 
Sometimes you do things even when you don't feel like it. And I can prove it. When's the last time you didn't feel like going to work? And how many of you called your boss and said, Boss, it wouldn't be authentic if I came in today. (laughs) Don't try that. It's not going to fly. The truth is we do all sorts of things when we don't feel like it and when we are discouraged. And here's the bigger point I want to get out of that, the, the loneliness that this man feels. The bigger point is this, isolation from, distance from God, from worshiping him, makes us prone to discouragement. The psalmist is experiencing that because he's cut off from being able to worship God. He, he has this desire for God's presence. He has this desire to be with God's people. And so that longing that he has, we, we can fulfill that all the more as we come together as Christ's church. We, we, we can know God deeper. We can bear under the trials of this life. But when we isolate, when we, when we push God away, what that only ends up doing is making us feel even more lonely and more isolated. It just exponentially increases the loneliness that we feel. And so there is a longing for God. There is this loneliness. Then the third reality is in verse 3. The reality of the Christian life is just this, personal attacks. Not only intense sorrow, but intense sorrow because of persecution. Such despair that he spends his days and his nights weeping. Who of us hasn't had a sleepless night where you felt the turmoil of something, you felt a burden and a weight, some hardship or some difficulty, and you were just exhausted? Exhausted physically, but also just from feeling this intense sorrow. Look at what the text says. He's, he's not just weeping, but he's weeping because he's surrounded by enemies whose only response to him in his state of tribulation is this. Where is your God? His enemies are coming around him and they're saying this. Look at your life. Look at how things are going. What good is the life that you live for God? Are you sure that God is even with you? So again, he records days and nights of weeping, of feeling the burden of the scorn that he faces. Their attacks are constant attacks. It says, they say to me all the day long, persistent persecution, personal attacks amidst a season of, of longing to come before God. Now, if you say, Rusty, you've got me depressed, that's great. Hold on, we're getting to the remedy. We just have one more reality that we need to go through, and that's verse 4. Verse 4, you could call this a shifting spiritual state. A shifting spiritual state. There there is a reality of the Christian life that you will at times look back on former seasons of life, former seasons of ministry, and have this sense of, of longing. He says, these things I remember as I pour out my soul. So he's praying to God, and he's remembering these times and longing for them. That, that when he led the way in worshiping God, long, longing for these times of joy and praise 
to God. He's remembering these mountain peak moments. He's remembering there's a shift from where he was spiritually to now where he is spiritually. He's trying to relieve his burden by remembering these former times. And I think rather than relieving that burden, I think he's only intensifying his own despair. This is Psalm 23, going from the pasture where the sheep are at ease. They, they are provided for. The shepherd's comfort is there. Now this is the dark valley. Unsure of what's ahead. Unable to see in front of him. These realities, again, are a part of the Christian life and experience. There are those in this church in a fellowship group you attend, in a Bible study you're a part of, that are experiencing this right now. Could be a short season, maybe it's a prolonged season, but there are those who could say, this is where I'm at, I identify with this verse. Maybe they're looking back on a season of life and they're saying, yeah, I remember that. I remember how sweet that time was, how blessed I felt then. And so what we can take away from these verses is that when you encounter somebody in this season of sorrow, in this time of hardship, be patient with them. Be patient with those who are actively experiencing this discouragement. Be a comfort. Be a help. Encourage them in their dark time. You could be like Job's friends, though. They, they were silent initially amidst Job's suffering, and that was their best moment. Just sitting with him for a week, not saying a word. But then they turned, they spoke hastily without knowing what was going on, and they only made Job's suffering worse. Sometimes just coming around those who are discouraged can be a help. And so again, in each of these verses, we have a different effect of suffering that is shown. I think the psalmist uses these because they are universal to our own experience. We all feel this way. We all have this struggle at times. We we feel the, the, the weight of the loneliness and the isolation. The tears are real. The struggle is real. And so I hope these are categories to help you think through times or seasons of sorrow that you can identify not just in your own heart, but you can help others to see what they may be dealing with. That you can recognize it and then be honest about how you feel. Be honest if you're longing for God, if you feel the sense of isolation or loneliness, if you're being attacked, if you're pining over former times. Because again, these can be the reality of the believer's life. But here's, the, here's where we have to go. We can't stop at that. We can't stop at just uh, languishing in hopelessness and heartache because God has an intended solution. You have to go past just identifying it onto now action. And that's what the next five verses provide us. These five or these seven verses provide us the remedy of the Christian life. 
The remedy for discouragement is found here, but particularly we will see in verses 5 and 11. Here's the big secret for the Christian life. Here is the challenge of the Christian life. Here's where the rubber meets the road. Here's where sanctification takes place and growth and maturity takes place. This is what you have to do. You have to preach to yourself and not listen to yourself. You have to preach to yourself and not listen to yourself. That was a phrase that Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones came up with. It's not my own. I just stole it, but it's good. And it's a helpful way to remember. Preach to yourself. Preach truth to yourself. Don't listen to yourself. Don't listen to your circumstances. So in the moment, in the valley, when you cannot see what's ahead, when the oppression does not seem like it's going to end, your tears will not stop flowing, call yourself to hope in God. Call yourself to hope in God. You see, the more I study Scripture and the more I go through this life, I find that two things are important for us to remember all the time, but especially in the midst of the trial. And those two things are the character of God and the promises that God has given us. Because if you will remember God's character and God's promises, you can weather any trial that comes at you, no matter how intense that trial is or how long that trial may last. And we have the remedy here in these verses. So let's look at verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? First off, what does he do? He recognizes his spiritual state. He identifies it. He knows he's in this condition. He does not deny it. He sees it for what it is. And so he calls himself out. But he, he doesn't stop just at how he feels. He moves past those feelings to truth. He's not going to let what he is experiencing in the moment come in the way of what he knows to be true of the Lord. He shows that by the very questions he asks of himself. These two questions, this kind of self-examination, this is a sign of maturity in a believer. Asking these questions is telling yourself, instead of listening to yourself, it's telling your heart, wait a minute, this isn't right. You're telling me I need to go one way, but I know God is telling me I need to go another way. I know that what you're telling me is not true and that I need God's guidance instead. Now here's the danger for believers. The idea that you need to preach to yourself and not listen to yourself is the exact opposite of what the world shoves in your face every hour of every day. The world is all too quick to tell you that what you feel is true. And you can look around and see what that does to the world. The world will tell you, follow your heart. And God says, that's a terrible idea. Because following your heart is listening to yourself instead of preaching to yourself. So God says this, you may feel this way, the world may say this to you, but I am the truth. 
I am the way. So turn to me, listen to me, and put your hope in me. And so in that time, when that discouragement happens, you can go one of two ways. You can give in to those feelings, give in to that discouragement. That would be listening to yourself. When you do that, you'll be tossed around by every little wave of life that comes your way. Or you can anchor yourself to God, again, to his character and his promises. And you can hope in him. Hope is just the confident expectation in God. The expectation that God is who he says he is and will do for his people what he says he will do. And that hope says, no matter what comes, I know that I can trust in him. And so I will trust in him and I will wait. I will confidently expect him to move. Why are you cast down on my soul and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. One thing to note here, he's talking to himself. You have to be the one who preaches to yourself. It cannot be the pastor. It cannot be uh, somebody else in your life. We can point you to God's word. We can point you to truth, but we cannot have the faith and conviction that you need to be fostering and developing so that in that moment you can stand and hope in God. It's got to be you. You've got to be preaching to yourself and then hoping in the Lord. And so what is the hope that the believer has? Well, he's got two hopes. We've already said them, but we'll say them again here. The first is in verse 6. What hope does the believer have? Well, he has the hope of remembering God's character. He's honest again with God. My soul is cast down within me, but he doesn't stop there. He moves on to truth. Therefore, I remember you. Though I'm still distant from you, I remember you. That's what he means when he references these places, the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mizar. He's he's saying, I'm physically distant from, from you, from being able to worship you. But even so, I'm keeping you first and foremost in my sights, in my thoughts. I'm discouraged and I'm abandoned, but I remember you. I won't forget you. So again, see how the psalmist, he's honest with God. My soul is cast down within me, but he doesn't stop there. He's truthful with how he feels, but he never turns to assault God or assaults his character because of it. We have a merciful God, a God that wants us to come before him, to approach him, to communicate with him the heartache and the pain that we feel. He knows your thoughts anyway. The worst you can do is tell him, this is what I feel, Lord. I'm, I'm, I'm in this agony right now. I'm despairing. But don't stop there. You don't stop at despair. You continue on. You don't just look inward, but you look up. You remember God. You remember his character. You anchor your soul to that for what is ahead and so then 
verse 7 through 11, then we have this, these two rounds of this uh, seemingly up and down, kind of back and forth in the psalmist's life, where he goes from the despair that he feels back up to these moments of clarity of, of trusting in the Lord. It's kind of these two cycles or these two rounds. I think there's a reason for that. I'll explain that as we get to the end here, but just want to go through these cycles. Verse 1, or sorry, rather, verse 7. This would be the first round of this up and down. He starts here with deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. Deep calls to deep. The idea here is that a, a, a mass of water has come up and is, is overwhelming him. And this mass of water comes up and it calls to the other depths of water. So it's like water comes up and then it calls out to the rest of the water. Hey guys, come on, let's go overwhelm this guy too. And they all come together and they just take this man out. Just these, it's this inviting of the roaring waters to come upon him. If one deep wouldn't do it, the rest of the deeps are coming together and they surely will. Now, interesting to note, back in verse 1, what was he comparing his longing to God for, or to? That of a deer and water. And now he's saying, now I'm overwhelmed. I'm overwhelmed by this flood. You think of two major events in the history of Israel that they could uh, think back on that would give them a mental picture of this verse. One would be the flood, right? the water coming from above and below, covering the earth. The second would be the Red Sea, the parting of the waters and then coming back over the Egyptian army. Both scenes that would be massively destructive. Obviously, we've all been to the beach and been knocked over by a wave, right? I have, and I'll tell you a story about that here. One of the first times uh, Jenny and I came to Florida, we were just newly married and visiting some family and came to the beach in uh, late October. And when you're an out-of-towner in Florida, you go to the beach the first thing when you get here, even though it's empty. And uh, we went out and we had these little uh, boogie boards and, that were given to us. And so we were out there enjoying the, the surf and family was on the beach taking pictures and video of us having a good time. And we decided to walk out into the waves with our boogie boards held like this instead of holding them to the sides. And there's a video somewhere of uh, us walking out and I'm just out of frame, but you get to see my wife get hit by a wave and knocked backwards and just slide on up to the shore. And then slowly I come into frame because what you don't see was I got hit by that same wave about two seconds earlier and just came sliding back up towards the land as well. And so we just kind of laughed and, and shook it off and then we knew the correct way to walk out into the ocean after that. <laughs> but we were overwhelmed by that wave. And so if one little wave can do that, if it can knock you down and even disorient you, again, going back to this verse Verse 7, can you imagine what he's trying to portray here? The turmoil that is in his soul by saying the depths are just opened up and they are just crashing over me and over me. But look at this, even in his despair, 
Look at what he says. He says, I know who commands the waves. It's at the roar of your waterfalls, your breakers, and your waves. Even in the midst of this, he recognized there's nothing coming against me that is outside of the governance of God. And so he's honest again. He speaks of this lack of feeling in control as the waves come over him. And then yet, in verse 8, he turns. This is our second hope that the believer has. In verse 8, he turns and remembers God's faithfulness to him. Again, he speaks honestly from the heart about what he feels, but he doesn't stop there. What does he do in verse 8? He remembers God's covenant love, God's loyal love, that God commands that love over him. So he's overwhelmed by the waves, but then he remembers this isn't the end of the story. The waves are not the end. He looks past those waters to the one who commands them, and he says, I remember God never leaves his people to defeat, but rather he surrounds them with his love. He commands it. At night his song is with me. He hears my prayers. So look at the picture here again in verses 7 and 8. I'm overcome by trials, like water coming over me. I have no control. It's just pounding me as I go through this life. But where does he place his trust? Verse 8, I know God's love is for me. I know he hears my prayers. The point is that your faith needs to be rooted in God's character and not rooted in your circumstances. Our faith needs to be rooted in God's character, not our circumstances. That means this for the believer. No matter your situation in life, no matter the trial that you're going through right now, no matter how discouraged you may be, if you are in Christ, you have greater reason to hope, greater reason to have a confident expectation in God than you do to walk in despair. Because your confident expectation is based on the character of God and his promises. His promise that he is with you, that his love is for you. We'll say this just as another side note, but you cannot grow in knowing the character and promises of God if you're not spending time in the word. Nowhere outside of God's word will you grow in that. A faith that is being strengthened and growing in God is one that is in his word because that faith is being nourished, it's being encouraged, it's bearing fruit. And the one who is actively engaging with God's word can hold on to the promises of God that he gives us in scripture. You say, well, what are some of those promises well, I'll just give you four scriptures you can write down. First would be Romans 8.28. Romans 8.28 should be a bedrock for believers, not just in trying times, but in good times too. All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Another scripture, 1 Corinthians 10.13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. 
but God provides a way of escape so that you may endure. You can count on that when trials come. Another, James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Count on all joy when you encounter trials of various kinds. Why? Because you can be confident of what God is producing, what he is working through those trials. One more. 2 Corinthians 4, 17. Momentary and light affliction is producing an eternal weight of glory. These are truths that we can anchor ourselves to. Why? Because God doesn't change and God doesn't lie. Because you can count on his character, you can count on his faithfulness in spite of what you see and in spite of what you may experience in this life. You can remember God's faithfulness. We turn now again then to our second round of speaking honestly about your trouble to God. This is round two in verses nine and ten. So we end verse 8 on this high note, but then we go back in verse 9 and 10 and we seem to go back down. It seems like we took a step backwards. We, we relapsed. We're now back into the gloom and the despondency of, of life. Right? We were on the mountain in verse 8 and now we're back down in the valley. You say, well, why would he write it like that? I would say, I don't know, first of all. It makes it hard to outline, but that's another, that's my problem, not yours. <laughs> But here's one thing that I think we can say about that. Why would he write this with this up and down? Well, because nothing about the Christian life besides God saving you is ever a one and done event. Because no one ever promised you, no one ever said that because you went through one trial in life that it would make the next trial less challenging. Everyone's trials are different. And every trial, if used properly, is going to help the believer press into God more, know him better, learn more about his character and promises with the goal of producing a greater Christ-likeness in them. And so again, this is why we come to God's word, why we read scripture, not just to check off a box, but to know God more, to see his faithfulness and character on display more to see his steadfast love for his people, ultimately then to grow in our trust and our faith in him, to grow to be more like Christ. So you read scripture because at times, verse 9 will come. You will have a time where you think God has forgotten you and you will cry out, why do I keep walking around like this? Why do I go on mourning? Why do I feel the weight of my enemies? We saw the attack of the enemy back in verse 3, but here it's a step up, if you will. Verse 3 says the psalmist is taunted by his enemies, and he's, he's uh, tearful, he's sleepless, he has sleepless nights. There's this uh, despair that he feels, but verse 9 and 10 are ramping it up. It's even deeper here. What does he say? Verse 10, As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. So it's not just causing him tears. Now he's saying it's like a wound that cuts to the bone. A deep wound cuts to the bone. 
So again, the psalmist is speaking honestly about his trouble. I feel forsaken. I feel forgotten. My enemies are coming against me, and it seems like they are winning. I feel like the death blow has been struck. And their taunt is the same all day long. Where is your God? Church, that is the lie that Satan wanted Eve to believe in the garden. Where is he? Just doubt him. Has God really said? That is a lie that the adversary wants you to believe, that your enemies want you to believe. But what does the psalmist do? He turns to God. He reminds himself of God's love and God's presence. He actively turns to the truth that he knows in spite of the trial, in spite of what he feels. So we round it out then with verse 11. What do you do? You speak honestly about your trial to God, but you come back to this. Then you preach to yourself. You don't listen to yourself. You don't listen to your circumstances. Speak to your soul. Speak to yourself the trust and the hope that you have in God. Don't deny your emotions, but don't stop at your emotions. Press on to truth with conviction that is based on the character and on the promises of God. So just a couple of thoughts then as we close to that you can reflect on. The first would be a warning. It's a warning for our hearts that this psalm should clearly help believers understand and avoid the pitfall that says prosperity is always what God desires for his children. Or maybe better yet, a way to say it would be an expectation that life will always turn out for good as I define good. Because if your life always turned out for, as you wanted for your good, you would end up being spoiled. And then all the verses about your trials helping you grow to be more like Christ would be for somebody else. So just to say this, God's idea of your prosperity in this life is much better and much wiser than yours. And it might be taking you through a season of trial and of struggle so that you would have a deeper faith and trust in the Lord. And then secondly, just this. This psalm should show us clearly that when we're going through the trial, believers need to turn to God, not from God. That is at times our initial reaction to turn away. But God says, no, turn to me. Because I know you have and you will have these trials, these tests of faith. Again, even prolonged seasons of enduring under suffering. And so when those come, turn to God. Hope in him. Don't turn away. So again, as we end one year and we approach another, let's have this mindset. Let's have the mindset of verses 5 and 11. Now let's, let's speak to ourselves. Let's identify how we feel, but then not stop there. Let's hope in God. Trust in his character. Trust in his promises. To be able to say, I know I will praise him again. He is my salvation and my God. Don't let your circumstances 
Don't let your feelings dictate your response to God in the heat of that moment. But remind yourself again that the remedy for trials and discouragement in this life is found in remembering God's character and God's promises and place your hope in him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you now, Lord, humbled by your word, how it pierces our heart, the psalmist's record of the trials that he faced, and yet he never doubted that you were in control, he never doubted that you are sovereign, never lost the expectation that he would praise you again. Lord, would you give us a faith that is maturing, a faith that tells us to preach to ourselves, to remember your goodness, remember your character and your promises so that when the trials, when the waves of this life wash over us, that we would be able to hold on to you. Father, we confess it is at times all too easy for our hearts to go astray and not see the rich depth of your mercy and your grace on display that you lavish on us each and every day. So Lord, would you grant us eyes of faith and a deeper trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen.